Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and when I was in college in the 80s is when I got politicized. I was trying to understand why there was so much poverty and racism in the world, and that fueled my academic study and political organizing. I wrote articles, did advocacy, organized events to highlight the reality and urgency of economic and racial inequality. And it was an uphill battle to get people to pay attention and respond to the challenges facing poor people. And around that time, I'll never forget that a beach whale washed up on a Northern California beach, and it captivated the mainstream public imagination. And people literally rushed to the beach to try to help the whale. Now, I cared about the whale, and it was a sad story, but I couldn't help envisioning people metaphorically, if not literally, stepping over homeless people to get to the beach to help the whale. And frankly, for much of my adult life, I felt disconnected at best, if not alienated, from the environmental movement in terms of its relevance to the struggle for justice and equality in this country. And I'm not alone. As recently as the early 2000s, a slate of people led by the former Democratic governor of Colorado tried to take over the Sierra Club and make it an explicitly anti-immigrant organization. Popular culture has often mocked the environmental movement as a fringe sector. An early Seinfeld episode featured a top NBC executive quitting his job to join Greenpeace and attack a whaling boat. And the more recently, the Donor of Color Network has issued a Climate Funders Justice Pledge to challenge foundations to give to groups of color. But I'm very happy to report today that things are finally changing in the environmental movement. The Sierra Club has gone from nearly be- being taken over by anti-immigrant activists to hiring as its new president, my friend Ben Jealous, the former president of the NAACP. And Greenpeace is now run by an African-American woman who comes out of the community and is connected to the community. This is not your parents' Greenpeace. And so we are delighted in today's podcast to have this new leader with us today. And for that conversation, I'm not joined by Charlene Chang, who is enjoying a well-deserved family vacation. But I am joined by the Democracy in Color staff writer, Fola Onifade, who is usually on the other side of the mic, helping us put together these podcasts. Hi, Fola. I'm excited for you to co-host. How are you doing? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hi, Steve. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to co-host, a little nervous, but I think it's going to be a really good conversation. And today, our guest is Ebony Tully Martin. Ebony is the executive director of Greenpeace USA an independent environmental organization which uses peaceful protest and creative communication to expose global environmental problems and promote solutions that are essential to a green and peaceful future. She's the first African-American to serve in this position and the first Black woman executive director of a national legacy environmental organization. Ebony has over 15 years of experience in the corporate and nonprofit sectors, and as a longtime justice strategist, her work at Greenpeace is committed to ensuring the organization helps to dismantle systems of oppression while engaging more Black and Brown communities on their terms. Welcome, Ebony. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Fola, and thank you, Steve. It's so nice to be with you all. We really appreciate you making the time and um, look forward to, to having this conversation. 
Yes. So we'll jump right in um, and start with just talking about your path to Greenpeace. Uh, you spent the last 10 years of your career at Greenpeace, and you started off as a talent acquisition manager. Mother's Day was just this past Sunday, and in the press release announcing your new role as the executive director, you shared how your path to the climate movement began when you became a mother. Can you share a little bit more about that and how you arrived at Greenpeace? Sure. Like uh, Steve said, it's not your mother's Greenpeace. It's a it's it's a different Greenpeace today. So when I think about my um, trajectory in this organization and even in the environmental movement, I, I think about where you know, I came from and I'm not an organizer by trade. I'm not a campaigner by trade or an environmental expert. I didn't go to school for that. I instead am a human resources and operations professional by trade and have really done a lot of work in that area. And that's also where my my, my um, studies um, have originated. But a few years ago, well, actually some time ago, when my oldest son was um, having some difficulty breathing, I took him to the doctor and told her, you know, asthma doesn't run in my family. But I was very concerned because if your child has a headache, you know, you give him Tylenol. If he's coughing, you give them Robitussin. But what do you really give your child when they can't breathe? And so she surprised me by asking, well, where do you live? And I told her, well, I live in an apartment building. And she said, well, are there grass and trees around? And I said, no. She said, tell me, you know, describe a bit where you live. And I said, well, there's a major roadway in, in front of my apartment and a major highway in back of my apartment. And I can hear the traffic going past it all times of the day and night. And she said, your son has asthma and it's environmentally induced. And this shocked me to my core um, because I had never heard that environments, your environment or your where you live would cause your child or you to, to get asthma. And as I began to study and to dig a bit deeper, I learned that black and brown children are disproportionately impacted by asthma. And that is because of the environments that they are in. And upon further research, I learned that the number one predictor of environmental pollution is actually race. It's not your income level. It's not your property value. It's race. And our folks are targeted more proportionately for highways and byways that um, have cars that travel that give off exhaust. And our communities are also targeted for um plants and incinerators and other toxins in our communities. That's where these infrastructure places are set up in our communities. And it's, it's of course, causing harm in a number of ways. And I said I had to do something to make a difference. And Greenpeace had a job opening for talent acquisition. And that's what my expertise, I have a lot of experience with um, building and developing teams and also identifying talent. And I said, you know, our people should be at the table when the when solutions are proposed for environmental harm. And our people need to be the ones that are the face of environmental harm and not necessarily the polar bears and the tigers. They're all good. And we, you know, want to save them, but we can't save them if we, we aren't breathing. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was important to me that the focus of environmental work, especially in Greenpeace, 
reflected the humanity of those who were more impacted. And that's how I kind of found my way in this work. Yeah, I want to I want to pick up at, on that talent acquisition point as well. Is that there was I had uh, lunch with a friend of mine um, who's now does talent recruitment in the Bay Area. She's talking about the number of people that she's hired, et cetera, et cetera. And I was telling her this story about how I was kind of reprimanded actually by one of the top folks in Obama's reelection campaign. Apparently, I said something critical in the newspaper about the administration not being diverse enough in its hiring and he's and this is like a top top person he's all like well you know we're that we we're, we're trying but we can't find people and mm. so i was like um well first i was like aren't you supposed to be running the country and not reading and responding to my comments in the paper but on this so can you talk a little bit about what you tried to do and what you did do when you came into greenpeace on this talent acquisition front how did you find people and how how did that go in your your first years there yeah, now that was rough. And I think a common refrain is, you know, we can't find the people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because we are looking for people to fit a certain and specific cut cookie cutter mold, so to speak, and not actually looking for the competencies or skills that the job needs um, to yeah. get done. And so when I came, you know, they were like, well, we want to diversify our staff and we want you to be responsible for that diversity and also the retention. And so, you know, I had to kind of say, hold a moment. I can bring in staff. However, the retention is due to the culture. And mm -hmm. are we setting up and creating an environment where people of color can be effective, impactful and successful? And that takes a bit of work. That's not just simply posting jobs on a job board. It takes a lot of um, cultural work. So some of the things that I did early on that weren't met with enthusiasm, as you could imagine, mm -hmm. were um, changing like our hiring practices. And basically, until what I set up was a, um, a policy that we could not move into interview phase unless the pool that you were going to interview was 50% Black, Indigenous, people of color, or 50% um, with women. So this, of course, set off a, um, I don't know, uh, some sort of startle in the organization. Well, where are we going to find people and how can we get ensure 50% diversity um, in hiring pools? And one of the things, you know, I told them, you don't have to be an environmental expert to be a campaigner. Mm -hmm. You just have to know how to go after the bad guys and build strategies to do that because all of the issues that we're fighting now are interconnected. So first of all, expanding our base outside of just um, the environmental movement, but starting to look across the sector in other areas. And then also just like challenging our folks, um, what networking events are you going to? Um, who are you meeting? What college campuses are you recruiting from? And so like really putting the power back in their hands, like I can do so much, but you all are connected in the spaces. So you all have to take ownership over the recruitment process as well and start to build your pipeline and your candidate pool and um, start to look in areas that you might not necessarily have looked at and not necessarily always bringing in your friends' kids or um, going to the same college campuses. So a number of er uh, things that we did to kind of like push staff along in this direction. 
that we started to see progress. So when I started, we were 13% Black, Indigenous, people of color. And today we're 57%. Wow. Yeah. You need to you need to give up Greenpeace and go around the road just to tell everybody else how to go about doing that kind of diversifying. <laughs> everyone says needs. that. Yeah, everyone says that. But it also was an intentional effort with um, embedding justice in our culture. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just changing the hiring practice. It was changing compensation practices. It was changing the promotions. We also changed and looking at how we gave opportunities to folks, um, training and development, a a number of things, even disciplinary practices, Mm -hmm. looking at how certain staff were disciplined compared to others and for what reasons. So there, there were a number of things that we did in a process that we've called embedding justice. And it's taken a number of years, but it has yielded fruit. So... I'm hopeful other organizations can scale it because it shouldn't right. just be Greenpeace doing this work. Right. Well, I'm sure once they hear this podcast, the practices will change across the entire progressive movement, I'm sure, overnight. <laughs> um, so part of the reason we're excited to have you on because it's a big deal that you're that you that Greenpeace has chosen you and that you're in charge of Greenpeace. But can you give people actually a little bit a sense of the scale of Greenpeace in terms of its, you know, uh, staff, its budget, its uh, global reach, that kind of thing? Sure. So Greenpeace is a very unique organization. And I know a lot of folks say that about their organizations, but it really is unique. We are a legacy organization, been here for 51 years, and we're actually founded on principles of nonviolent direct action. We are a global network and we have 55 different offices um, across the world that we work with intentionally to build global campaigns and programs um, to expose environmental harm. The U.S., we have two offices, one in Oakland and one in D.C., and we have about 140 folks on staff currently. And we, our campaigns that we focus on are climate, democracy, and oceans. And we also have a, a, a forest campaign as well that, like I said, we'll work with our offices in the network. So like with our forest campaign, we work primarily with our Brazilian office and our offices in um, Southeast Asia. And with our climate campaign, we've actually just launched a global fossil fuel climate campaign that is really connecting all of our offices around the world in the direction of ending our, the world's dependency on fossil fuels. So in terms of this, now being in a leadership position in this movement, right, that the, as we were talking about, you know, the, historically, both I think the actual composition as well as perception of the environmental movement has been, you know, very white, very kind of hippie, tree hugger, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right, there's a picture, I think it was in the, in the press release of you with you, your arms crossed in front of a Black Lives Matter sign, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now that you're kind of in, coming from, being who you are, and now being in the position in this organization and in this movement, how do you want to see the environmental movement change? And what, what role are you hoping that Greenpeace can play in that regard? That's a great question. And like I said, I, I think a lot about my journey to environmental work and how I wasn't seen as, or I'm not seen as someone who would traditionally lead Greenpeace or an organization, an environmental organization. However, because I live in the environment and I'm impacted by the environment, I am an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an important distinction that the movement has sometimes gotten wrong. Mm -hmm. And 
I want Greenpeace and this movement to be led by the folks that are more impacted by harm. And so that means the single moms like me that are trying to figure out how their kids are going to breathe. It means the aunties and uncles who are living in California with an oil well outside of their home and are suffering from cancer. Mm-hmm. It means the the former coal miners who 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 have now black lung because of the conditions that they were subjected to. They all want change and they all don't want to pass down this environment to like the future generations. And they are environmentalists. So it's important to me that this movement reflects the diversity of the issues and the diversity of the people that are impacted. And we've done a lot of work to partner more intentionally with communities, local communities and activists um, who are on the front lines of these issues, because I don't think that solutions, we won't find the solutions. Um, if, and if, if the movement would have found the solution, we wouldn't be where we are right now. Right. You know, 10 years ago with um, the same folks, all with button up ties and, you know, white dominant culture sitting at the table trying to figure out these solutions, we wouldn't be where we are right now if it had worked. Yeah, I think that's something that, that's been notable to me looking at your work in terms of how much, like you're saying, you have a you know focus on democracy and other interviews you talked about emphasizing building power. And I think that, mm-hmm. that there's kind of a, not kind of, a, I think there's a significant strategic divide in the progressive mm-hmm. movement around how do you accomplish your goals, how do you bring about change, and how much of it is about persuasion in terms mm-hmm. of trying to provide information and reports and studies and versus how much of it is in terms of getting the power to get people in place to actually do what you want to what you want to see to your point that is very that's a true distinction i think in the environmental movement that's one of the pitfalls we have felt like if we just educate folks enough mm-hmm. things would change or if we just tell them these facts and these metrics things would change but as you all, you know, that's not really how you build power and bring change and create agency to make change. It's meeting people actually where they are. Yeah. I mean, Van Jones told me this story when he was the, whatever, the green czar in the White House that, you know, so the environmentalists would come in with uh, three by five index cards and try to make mm-hmm. their points. And the other side would come in with double barrel shotguns, right? <laughs> in terms of trying to... <laughs> In terms of some of that power fight, I actually wanted to ask you about this lawsuit against Resolute Forest Products. So they sued Greenpeace, I guess, for defamation. They were mm-hmm. trying to get $100 million. Um, and then you were talking about, uh, I think your quote is saying it's, uh, you know, both being bigger than Greenpeace and important, you know, way to, they're trying to silence people who were trying to speak up. So can you give us a little more background about the suit and what the victory means for Greenpeace and the and the climate justice movement? Sure. So Greenpeace has been involved in what are called strategic lawsuits against public participation. And really what this is, is another tool by the right to undermine our democracy and to silence advocacy. We know one of the bedrocks of our democracy is freedom of speech. And so one thing that Greenpeace does is we expose and speak out against environmental harm, no matter who's doing it. 
And if it's a big company, of course, we're going to speak out because that's that's one of the things we're really strong in is corporate campaigning. So we spoke out against this logging company, a Canadian logging company to basically put a price tag on our speech and Mm -hmm. basically bully us into silence. Um, basically to try and bankrupt us, to have us spend all of our time, energy and effort fighting this case. And we have been for the last seven years, we fought this case tooth and nail because we knew it was not just important for us, but it was important for the movement. Since in the last five years, 50 of these slap suits have been filed against people, everyday people Mm -hmm. and corporations. But you don't normally hear it because people don't have the ability to fight back. If you open up and you you get a lawsuit for $300 million, of course, you're going to be quiet. But Greenpeace had the ability to fight back. And so we have carried this on our backs for the last seven years. And finally, in April, about three weeks ago, the judge finally threw out the, the entire suit and said that it was baseless. So this has been a victory for for not only Greenpeace, but for free speech and the right to advocate and to speak out against harm. Now, we have another suit coming up by the same attorneys, Kasowitz, and this one is based in North Dakota with the um, Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, The company that put the Dakota Access Pipeline down is called Energy Transfer Partners. And they have sued us and basically alleged that we orchestrated the entire protest movement at Standing Rock back in 2016. Mm. And this is a complete fabrication and it is a lie. But again, it's it's done to silence us and to silence the movement and to say that if you speak out, if you protest, we'll sue you into silence. And we will make sure you don't exist. Yeah, no, it's well, sometimes I wish the, the people make all these claims. I was like, I wish I had that kind of influence, right? What you're trying to, trying yeah. to orchestrate. But I think it's super important that an organization that has the, you know, has some, you know, size and scale and some resource space is able to wage the fight back. So then it does open up the landscape for all the other activists who aren't in a position to fight as well. So I think that that is super important. And then we've also gotten um, Jamie Raskins also introduced federal legislation for slap suits in particular, so that these companies can't use them as a way to silence. Because currently 32 states plus the District of Columbia um, have slapped laws on the books, but we do need federal legislation because, like I said, it's just another way that the right is undermining the democracy and they come up with tools every other week that keep us on our toes. I'd like to talk for a brief moment about young people and their role in the climate movement. In recent years, young people have been at the forefront demanding climate action from the powers that be. There's the Sunrise Movement, which was founded in 2017, um, with the goal of electing proponents of renewable energy in the 2018 midterms. So youth-led movement that gained significant press coverage after organizing a sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office. That same year in Europe, young people organized school strikes called Fridays for Future, which has grown into a youth-led global climate movement. What do you think about the role of young people in the fight for climate justice? And how does Greenpeace work with youth who are passionate about the cause? That is a great question. I think if we look at many movements over the past 10, 15 years, even longer than that, even if you look at the civil rights movement, 
what really galvanized folks was when the youth went out and marched in Alabama and when we had the youth on the freedom rides. Youth can interject a vibrancy, uh, intensity, and a passion in any movement. Um, we even saw it with the immigrants' rights movement over the last few years. It's, it's largely youth-led. And so has a lot of the climate movement, I think, that has gained momentum even over the past few years, even with us seeing the IRA being passed. Seventy percent of Americans are concerned about the climate crisis, and a large part of them really are driven by the youth. And they're kind of like looking at us like, is this what you're leaving us with? Is this the planet (laughs) that we're supposed to inherit? And because we failed them, they're saying, well, we're going to take matters into our own hands now. And we see, like you said, marches, we've seen sit-ins, we've seen a number of nonviolent direct ways of uh, bringing attention to the climate crisis. And I think like even we see with the guns, right? Well, passing of guns laws um, we saw in Tennessee, how the youth showed up. And I really think we're at a point where the youth are going to have to lead the way and push us and propel us into the direction of a clean energy future. Because if we leave it to the powers that be now, well, we we, we see what happens when we leave it to the powers yeah. that be. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk a little bit about a little bit about this kind of inside outside game than about the Biden administration in particular. And there's always a balance slash tension in the movement between you know the push for the full agenda and the most far-reaching change and uh, and then when and how to strike a compromise and what what's a what's the difference between a compromise and a sellout is often in the eye of the beholder right mm-hmm. so <laughs> in terms of the what the Biden administration has done right so they signed the they passed and signed the inflation reduction act which you know is is my understanding says roughly 370 billion in climate related spending mm-hmm. the infrastructure bill that was passed before that bill back better you know they said it's also 150 billion in climate investments in that and so you know you and i've talked about this a little bit but i think it's a little bit i don't know either complicated or nuanced so i'm interested in what's your perspective of this Biden administration leg- legislation congressional legislation in terms of uh, your assessment of it, in terms of is this progress, is it not? Um, what's what's your takeaway? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a bit of both. It's a mixed bag. Of course, we are ecstatic that we did get climate legislation passed, and that it was it was an issue for many voters. And so, I think that Biden knew he had to do something. And I think he also did take seriously many of his campaign promises that he wanted to be a president that um, led on on bringing solutions to the climate crisis. And so we see a lot of that with the IRA and and there were a lot of major steps forward, I think, with restoring um, the rightful role of science and the EPA's decisions, the aggressive greenhouse gas emission standards for the transportation sector. And then also addressing forever chemicals and knowing how they pollute our air, our water, and especially in underserved communities. And a lot of the investments that he did make in um, underserved communities um, that have been harmed due to environmental degradation. However, I think some of the concerns that continue to arise in in the climate movement, and especially around environmental justice, is 
there still continues to be frontline communities that are in that sacrifice zone. Mm -hmm. So while there were investments made, he has also approved over 6,000 permits for drilling on public lands. There are also plans for major build-outs of LNG export facilities. This is liquid natural gas export mm. facilities and petrochemical plants down in the Gulf South region. And who's down there? Black and brown right. folks. So who's going to be harmed the most? Black and brown folks. And it's at the expense of exporting oil to Europeans. So it kind of like has a colonial nature about it. Like mm. we're sacrificing certain folks so that people across the way, across the seas in European countries have energy. And it's it's caused like a bit of friction in, in the environmental space. And I can say, you know, Greenpeace, we're happy that there were so many investments made in clean and renewable energy. But we are grieved and extremely disappointed that frontline communities continue to be sacrificed. And we would want the administration to look into this and really honor his commitments about not drilling <laughs> and, and really look to see what we can do, not just to take the U.S. off of fossil fuels, but it's a global problem and we can't right. export the problem. And as you're talking about the Forest earlier, uh, Greenpeace's role in defending forests, I think you said globally in Asia, and also the people who get harmed the most and who were sacrificed. I wanted to talk a little bit about Cop City in Atlanta, which mm. is a unique example of the intersections of environmental racism, climate injustice, police brutality, and so much more. So mm -hmm. for some background for listeners, Cop City is a proposed $90 million 85-acre police and fire department training center that would be built on Wilani Forest, also known as the South River Forest in Atlanta, Georgia. The land is located within a majority Black and deeply disinvested area of DeKalb County. This land is sacred to the Muscogee people, and in 2017, it was designated as one of the city's four major lungs. And earlier this year in January, Atlanta police officers shot and killed 26-year-old environmental activist Tortuguita. Um, Tortuguita was a peaceful protester who was nonviolent. And it was the first time that police killed an environmental activist while protesting in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. You shared a video on Twitter last week in response to what's happening with Cop City. Could you talk a little bit more about how you're thinking about the situation and is Greenpeace involved in any way? Yeah, this this situation in Atlanta is is very scary. And I think we all need to be paying attention how the governments have overreached and are now charging the activists with domestic terrorism, domestic terrorism. This was something that Timothy McVeigh was charged with wow. charging folks with domestic terrorism just for speaking out against environmental harm. And then also when the activists simply try to raise awareness of the murder of Tortuguigua by passing out flyers, and they made sure to do it in a way that they said um, wasn't violation of the law. They didn't even get out of the car from what I understand. They were arrested and placed in solitary confinement. And also their bail was denied for a certain period of time. And I just think like, 
we need to wake up and realize that the way that they're testing these policies and also these charges in Georgia will be expanded to other states and we'll look up and see similar things happening. And there are also many laws being passed now against public protests, against specifically protests around critical infrastructure. And the critical infrastructures are the pipelines and the exports and everything that they use for fossil fuel production. They are now starting to criminalize when you protest and say you don't want these things in your city. And so I just think it is incumbent upon us to be vigilant and see the many different angles and ways in which they're working to undermine our freedom and our environment and our freedom to have uh, clean air and water and our freedom to speak out when these things aren't occurring. So it's, it's a dangerous precedent. I mean, it's fascinating and annoying, right, that the creativity and aggressiveness with which the right wing and the, these corporate forces will move in terms of you know, domestic terrorism, utilizing those laws for this, when people wearing sweatshirts saying MAGA Civil War January 6, 2021, stormed the United States Capitol and were not charged with domestic terrorism. So isn't that a critical institution to the government, I mean, to our country, right? The U.S. Capitol, where people are actually... So I also think it raises up that we as a movement also have to be far more creative and aggressive in terms of our utilization of all the different tools that are out there. And we should be, we should have been and should still be pushing the Justice Department and other people to charge the actual domestic terrorists with domestic terrorism. So anyway, that's an unscripted soapbox statement. No, but um, it, it's who, who, what color are the folks that are, yeah. you know, and that that's where, as you say, the civil war lies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to, as we you know, move towards wrapping up, just kind of ask you a little bit about what kind of how you're holding up and then what... Can people to be helpful, but also what have has been uh, done to be helpful? I've you know I've seen lots of people of color when they finally get into positions of power, the stresses are greater, and the challenges are enormous. And then you also have a whole you know array of uh, microaggressions from donors, the media. So I was reading an article about the uh, entrepreneur of color was pitching a venture capital company, mm-hmm. and they were told. There's a black entrepreneur, and they were told by the venture capitalists, oh, yeah, we're not going to be able to invest. We've given out all of our black money. Wow. They just like straight up came out and said, wow. apparently there's unlimited supply of white money, but <laughs> there's, so there's all these different types of things that I think that people of color know intuitively, other people don't necessarily. So I'm also trying to inc- increasingly encourage people to find, you know, even small ways to be supportive and encouraging, right? I, mean, I just recently learned that as a woman who's a progressive donor and that she sent Stacey Abrams flowers every week for two years. Oh, Yeah. So I just thought that was really touching. So I'm just curious, have, as you, because you've been in the, you know, deep in it, in this movement that has not historically been that diverse or that cutting edge, shall we say, in terms of racial justice. So can you share a little about what's been sustaining you and sustaining for you and other things that have been done or things or people who've been supportive of you in that regard? Yeah. Um, Well, folks like you have been supportive. Um, Not fishing for that, but thank you. No, but I mean, even given the platform, um, this isn't an issue. The environmental justice angle doesn't always get the space in media or the platforms to even inform, 
you know, your community of what's happening and what's going on and um, how they can too be um, agents of change. But I would say one of the things that I have been doing more intentionally is surrounding myself with other black and brown leaders and the progressive movement in this space. It seems that it, it if you look around, there are many of us now and mm-hmm. we're kind of looking like, well, wow, that that kind of just happened. But how do we work together to support one another, not just personally, but also organizationally and and how we build power and how do we position even our asks to philanthropy to show the direction of how how we see the movement building and building power over time? So I, I think a, a lot of how I've gleaned support and wisdom is just by surrounding myself with other leaders who have kind of gone this way or um, have a bit more experience. So that has been really helpful um, to me. As you said, I've, I've been in contact with Ben and Reverend Yearwood and, and um, uh, Rana from um, uh, Move wow. On. And, and so learning from them has been really helpful. And what I would say to Folks who are listening, another way you can always support us is is through donating to to mm-hmm. the organization. As I said, we're, we've been engaged in many legal battles and we have one coming up um, with the Dakota Access Pipeline and, and Energy Transfer Partners. And that is that's leading and also hurting our capacity and our resources. So building up in that way is always helpful. And then whenever we have a call to action, whenever we are downtown and we have or or in California, wherever we are, when we're down on the ground in the communities, we were just in St. Charles for Earth Day. When we are building with our allies and our partners, showing up in those spaces and telling us what your community needs, um, how Greenpeace can support and bring what we have to the fight is always helpful. So just looking for those opportunities, I think, to connect with the community in more intentional ways and figure out as, yeah, how we build and scale power because the majority of Americans are with us now. And um, while we'll never have as much money as that top 1%, we do have the people with us. And we know that change only comes through people demanding change. I think Greenpeace is keen <laughs> to build that power and and lead the, the way for change in environmental justice. If people want to contribute or sign up with Greenpeace, where do they go? We have a number of ways to donate. First, you could donate by texting 86799. Against that's 86799. Or you could call us at 1-800-722-6995. Or you could visit us online at engage.us.greenpeace.org. Again, that's engage.us.greenpeace.org. Great. Well, we're gonna you as the head of an organization with fifty-five, uh, you know, entities around the world. We're gonna let you go. I know you're very busy, so really appreciate your making the time to join us today. And we're really, really glad that you're in this position and doing this work. Thank you, Fola, and thank you, Steve. It was a great conversation. All right. So that's all the time we have for today. We're glad that Ebony could be with us and super glad that she's taken on that uh, responsibility to try to lead that movement. 
Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Ebony on Twitter at Ebony underscore number four underscore justice. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, upgrade your perception and update your perception of the green movement and keep the faith.